Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Didn't we just have some great news this last week? It was absolutely fantastic. We heard that not one but two pharmaceutical companies had a vaccine that was doing well in clinical trials. And while we have to wait for the final results and the regulatory approval, things are looking pretty bright. Not only that, but didn't you feel a swell of pride for every donut day we had as a state? I know I really felt connected and part of the community and I did feel quite chuffed about it. Now, first up on the show today, we'll be speaking with Caitlin Yolland, who recently completed her PhD in cognitive neuroscience, looking at how oxidative stress relates to symptoms in schizophrenia. She comes from a mixed background of both drama and science. Now, that's very interesting, so we're going to ask her about that. And she's now working as a postdoctoral researcher in the Centre for Mental Health at Swinburne University. Caitlin will be chatting with us about the potential role of oxidative stress in psychosis, and I've really just got to ask her what oxidative stress actually means. And in particular, she's looking at a particular set of symptoms called the negative symptoms. So lots to talk about with Caitlin. Professor John McNeil Ayo is a giant in Australian public health. Uh, Originally undertaking specialist training, he then studied epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, then moved to Monash University in 1986, where he has remained until now. His work has centred around large-scale clinical trials and clinical registries and the application of epidemiological methods. Now, I reckon a year ago, if I said epidemiological, most people would go scratch their heads and go, what? But now everybody knows what epidemiology is. So he's, uh, he's uh, centred his research on epidemiological methods and applied it to the problems in clinical, and pub- clinical medicine and public health. He really is on way too many health management boards and committees to mention, uh, but they are all testament to his dedication to public health. Today, John will be speaking with us about one of his biggest undertakings. It's the ASPRI trial of low-dose aspirin in the elderly, which is one of the largest uh, trials ever conducted in Australia. And it wouldn't be a show without Dr. G-Spot, our uber-psychologist researcher, and Nurse EpiPen, our very own nurse manager. Everybody needs a nurse manager, EpiPen. Um, they'll be sharing the latest from the medical news, plus we'll be having a spot of music As well, so stick with me, Dr. Mal, for the next hour of radiotherapy. I'm going to try and push a button now, and hopefully we're going to be hearing the dulcet tones of Nurse EpiPen. You're going to have to unmute yourself, EpiPen. Am I on? Am I on? You are on. Am I on? Am I in? Whatever. It's the last show for the year for us, and and I'm so on. You are so on. And are you there, uh, G-Spot? You're going to have to unmute yourself, G-Spot. I am equally on, Dr. Mal. Is it, it's, it's, it's getting harder and harder to get up early on a Sunday morning, isn't it? <laughs> but uh, we're here and we have got lots to talk about. Now, um, EpiPen, you, just, you waltzed into the studio this morning and you said, I've got something big to talk about. You said, have I ever heard about this? And I said, have I heard about it? So tell us about it, Epi. So... I was scratching around for a topic and my very sweet brother-in-law, who's a GP, said, 
you know about this hit thing and it's h-i-i-t and i thought no anyway it stands for high density interval training and it is it revolutionary i think we've all done of the of the philosophy of it where we do lots of exercising slow slow and speed up but just take you through so um I think you need to probably have a with your GP at some stage to make sure that your blood pressure and your, your ticker is okay. Abby, and then, I'm, just, I'm just wondering, you're, yes. I think we're getting a poor connection. We might just get you to move your computer, just maybe move it a bit to the left or right so that it picks up those Wi-Fi waves. Can you hear me? Yeah, let's try that. Me? Let's try that. And if that doesn't work, that we'll get better? you to move around a bit and we'll go to G-Spot and come back to you. Yeah, so you go for it. So go see your GP before you're starting hit yep. is what you're telling us, yeah? Yep. And then program through a personal trainer or a physio. But in essence, it is um, what you need to do is to have a workout in short bursts of intense exercise with periods of rest or lower intensive exercise. Mm. So what I'm talking about is, for example, you might want to jog for 10 minutes to warm up, then do four-minute four intervals of faster running with three-minute intervals of moderate jogging, running. But you, the principle is to have a break between the intense exercise. So if for me, because... Exercise can be um, a problem with lack of time, lack of motivation, poor, and poor adherence to some exercise programs. But this program, the HIT, you can do very quickly. You can do just riding your bike. You can go up a hill really quickly for two minutes and then rest. And then you, or if you're walking you, around a park or something, you can just fly into a speedy run and then rest. You make it so sound so simple. Is <laughs> fly into a run for two minutes. Yeah, easy. <laughs> but our philosophy is that it has to hurt. So you really have to feel your heart pounding. And the other thing is that you don't necessarily need any equipment. Mm. So when you're doing your run or your jog or I've got a bike so I could ride my bike really, really quickly, mm. very fast until it hurts, mm. pounding chest, and then you have a rest. And this has been shown, there's quite a few studies and there's been um, a, a few reviews of published studies to show that this it's very effective in it, um, helping you have some good cardiac health. I'm not completely sure about what that means, but neither do the researchers. They said that it's to do with um, a good pumping heart. Well, so, lower your heart rate. It would that's uh, right. do all those good things, you know. That sort of things. And and it's also supposed to help you lose weight. There is well, for overweight people, mm. it's quite help, helpful. But Never underestimate a good diet if you are overweight. I um, so yeah. Look, can I just reinforce what you're saying? And also, you know, if before you get into any um, training regime with exercise, especially high intensity stuff, you really should speak to an expert. You know, go see your GP. Um, you know, just make sure you you're in that you've got the capacity to because it, it can be fairly intense. And make sure that you get a, a program that you know done by a professional. I'd say. But having said all those caveats, 
making sure you're okay cardiac-wise and, and other health-wise and that you're getting your program done by an expert. I started doing HIIT training probably about five years ago and it totally changed my life. It wasn't so much the physical aspects, it was more the headspace. Just cleaned out the cobwebs, lowered my sort of general stress level, lifted my mood, started sleeping so well, I put my head down and I wake up. It, it, made a, it, it totally turned around things for me. So yes, I'm a huge HIIT convert, um, but you've got to do it. Um, with professional help, I would say. Um, don't just do it off your own. But make sure that you're in good condition beforehand by seeing your health professional, GP, and so forth. Yes, love the old hit. But it, and it's very manageable. Like going to walk, I always fly up the stairs at work. It's, it takes 30 seconds and then I rest. Well, that's something else as well. That's incidental exercise. So it's, it's about, you know, yeah, it's about taking the stairs rather than lift. It's about walking from, you know, a further car park than a close car park and trying to incorporate exercise in, 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 into your day. Yeah. All good Very stuff. Cool. But love hearing All this stuff. stuff. Physical yeah. stuff is good stuff. Now, I don't know what you're going to talk about, um, G-Spot. You always surprise us. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a bit of shameless self-promotion. Good. but I. I think it is aligned with EpiPen's story because my team at Monash were very much sprinting towards our big launch for the world's first positive body image chatbot, which is a collaboration with our national eating disorder support organisation, the Butterfly Foundation. Now, if our listeners aren't sure what a chatbot is, it's a computer program that uses AI technology to have human-like conversations. And our chatbot is called Kit, not to be confused with the Knight Rider Kit, David Hasselhoff. Although if you're listening, David, we would love an endorsement. And ABC Breakfast, I'm still free. We've been yeah. Okay, so what Kit does um, in, the, in the spirit of promoting positive body image is educates people about body image and, and eating disorders, as well as teaching evidence-based coping skills to people experiencing body image distress. And Kit is especially active on uh, social media, which we know can be quite triggering for people um, for their body image distress. But Kit also supports the uh, loved ones of people experiencing these issues. So it's not just for the people themselves, it's also for their friends, families, partners, educators, health professionals, etc. We've already had lots of people speaking with Kit since um, Kit launched on Wednesday. So it's very, very recent. Um, if you'd like to chat to Kit too, all you need to do is go to the Butterfly Foundation homepage, which is www.butterfly.org.au, and Kit will just pop up. So Kit's a little pop-up there. Kit's a, a cute little green character. Um, so you won't you won't miss it. Kit looks like a sort of green speech bubble. Um, but of course, if you want to talk to people in person, then call the Butterfly Helpline because Kit is a robot or a chatbot. And the butterfly helpline is one eight hundred thirty three four six seven three. I actually tried it out. You sent me the link, and it's it's very very easy. Like you type in what is an eating disorder, and it says, "Oh hi Rob." Um, da, 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 I know. This is, you know, I'm thinking, oh. I know. That's see, see, Doctor Mal, we designed it for you know young people and more mature people like yourself in mind. So I <laughs> uh, hope it's easy easy using for everyone. And what sort of research are you going to be doing on this? Because I know you're a researcher. I am indeed. Um, so we're, we're obviously looking at how many people use mm. KIT, how long they spend on it, but we also have surveys included within KIT looking at did you benefit from this particular skill, how satisfied are you with using KIT. So there's, there's surveys which are only about two to three minutes littered throughout KIT's conversation. Mm. And how hard was it to, I mean, <laughs> I just I'm, like the, my mind boggled, like how do you get 
a thing to understand English and then to give the information? I mean, what was that process like? Extraordinarily difficult, Dr. Malpractice. Yeah. And, um, a project that's been two years in the making. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say that Kit, this is Kit 1.0. Mm-hmm. So through this trial phase that we're doing at the moment, Kit's learning all the time with people um, with people using it. Oh, yeah. so, so like the learning curve is really like exponential now that we've released Kit into the wild. So what we did was we gave Kit as many answers as we could to as many questions as we thought people would ask, um, but Kit is still learning from people using it. Oh, so it's like Dinkum Artificial Intelligence. It learns it, as it, it goes. Does. Did I not say AI when oh, I was sorry. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't, you know, pulling your leg. It's Dinkum. <laughs> wow, that is I just find that amazing. So you've Thank got to you. you've got to give us an update like in a couple of months' time as of to course. as to what you've learned from having an AI interface doing the sort of stuff you do clinically? Like, is it learning the right stuff? I know. Like, I'm going to retire within six months. That is my prediction. So uh, watch this space. More power to you. And that is Kit at the Butterfly Foundation. You type in butterfly. www.butterfly.org.au and kit is a pop-up. And check it out. Thank you so much, guys. Um, We're going to go to some sponsorship announcements and then we're coming back with uh, Dr. Caitlin Yolan to talk about oxidative stress and psychosis. And I'm just, everybody talks about oxidative stress and I kind of nod my head going, yeah, but I really have no idea what it is. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Welcome to the panel, Dr. Caitlin Yoland. G'day, Caitlin. Oh, sorry, Caitlin. Sorry. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You've just exposed my technical ineptitude. Yes. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's, it's fantastic having you uh, on the show. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and then I'll hand over to Dr. G-Spot. Yes. Um, well, as, as you very lovely introduced me before, I come from a mixed background. I did uh, an undergrad Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Science double degree. So I did drama in my science and psychology, uh, sorry, drama in my arts and psychology in my science and um, have gone on to do my PhD in neuroscience looking at oxidative stress and schizophrenia. Wow. Um Drama. Well, look, I've got to ask you a, a bit about that um, after uh, Dr. G-Spot's finished asking you about oxidative stress and so forth. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dr. Mal. I'm definitely keen to return to Caitlin's um, drama career as well as her uh, social media influence. I hope she'll talk to us about that as well. Um, so, Caitlin, we're going to break this down for our listeners. First up, what's schizophrenia? Uh, yes, that's an excellent opening. Um Schizophrenia is a really complex syndrome, and I say syndrome rather than individual illness because there's a lot of what we say is heterogeneity in schizophrenia. So there's a lot of ways that people present differently. So to kind of narrow it down to one thing is probably a bit too simplistic. Um, Schizophrenia obviously has uh, what we call positive symptoms. So they're not positive in the sense that they're good symptoms, but they're positive in the sense that they're additional experiences to what people without schizophrenia have. So that's what we tend to think about when we think about schizophrenia, the sort of psychosis type symptoms, things like delusions and hallucinations. Um, So they're quite prominent symptoms that individuals with schizophrenia experience. 
There are also other clusters of symptoms. One prominent one is negative symptoms, and these are things that they are actually lacking in comparison to healthy individuals. So these are things like really struggling with motivation, um, anhedonia, where there's a real flattening of emotion, um, flattening of affectivity in the face, so um, sort of lack of emotional responses in the face as well, and other sort of motor or bodily symptoms. Um, there are also sometimes cognitive impairment that individuals with schizophrenia experience, so maybe struggling with things like short-term memory and attention, um, processing speed, that sort of stuff as well. So while we think about schizophrenia as the positive symptoms because they're what we see in popular culture a lot, there are actually the negative and cognitive symptoms going on as well, which we are really failing to treat in individuals with schizophrenia. Positive symptoms can be to a certain extent managed through antipsychotic medication, um, but the negative and cognitive symptoms, we're still struggling to do an adequate job helping these individuals. So, and, and also interestingly, these are the two clusters of symptoms that have a really big impact on things like quality of life um, and day-to-day -day functioning. So actually the ability to sort of maintain work, obviously if, it's, if, if you're really struggling with motivation, it's gonna be harder to kind of get up and engage with life. Um, so, so that's kind of a, a, I guess, a holistic <laughs> overview of, and again, a very simplistic view of schizophrenia, but in a nutshell. Not at all. Thank you, Caitlin. That was, you've answered like my next 12 questions. Thank you for preempting everything. <laughs> um, I think you mentioned before there, Caitlin, sort of the, the positive symptoms, of course, not actually being positive for the person experiencing them, are what people know schizophrenia most well for. I'm wondering, like, I suppose uh, schizophrenia has a lot of stigma attached to it. And I was wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a highly stigmatised illness. Um, and I think a huge part of that is, um, I think there are two things. I think one is lack of understanding and I think the other is poor representation in popular culture. Um, and the fact that a lot of times I think that, and in the news and the media as well. Um, so I think that you know, we, we tend to associate schizophrenia with a lot of negative things um, and including violence in that, whereas the, the fact is actually people that have schizophrenia are more likely to be re receiving um, violent acts and things like that than members of the general population. Um, so the reverse is actually true. Um, and so I think that part of it comes down to um, us as researchers doing a better job explaining about um, schizophrenia and the struggles that these people experience, but also the successes that these people have. I mean, a lot of them, a lot of individuals with schizophrenia do live perfectly functional lives, are able to manage their illness very successfully. Um, and, 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 and I guess we just don't kind of see examples of that um, uh, out, in, out in the media and in popular culture as well. Mm, really good point, Caitlin. And uh, I was about to, well, we will definitely get into your what you're doing about those negative symptoms. But I wanted to ask what drew you to schizophrenia research? Um, well, I, I've always been interested, like my passion is mental health in general. I wasn't necessarily specifically interested in schizophrenia, but something that does draw me in is, as you say, the stigma associated with it. Um, I think that particularly... Um, thinking about what I looked at in my PhD was chronic schizophrenia and there tends to be a lack of research into chronic schizophrenia. There's quite a lot in Australia that goes into first episode psychosis, which is crucial and really important research because um, uh, you, the earlier intervention 
does does tend to predict longer term outcomes. So that research is really critical. But at the same time, there isn't as much focus going on for individuals that have chronic or treatment resistance schizophrenia. So um, I, I feel like that's a really important group that that also deserves <laughs> equal attention. I, I think it's such important work, Caitlin, and I'd like you to tell us more about negative symptoms and oxidative stress that you've been researching about for the last couple of years. Sure. So speaking to, to Dr. Malpractice's request, I think it's probably good to give a brief overview of, um, of oxidative stress first. And at the end of the day, it's actually, I mean, of course, it's a, it's a complex thing, but to explain the definition of it is reasonably simple. So we have in our body both oxidants and antioxidants. Um, and I'm sure we hear about antioxidants in berries and the, our nice evening glass of red wine. Um, and essentially, our body is um, on a homeostasis sort of platform and we need to have balance in our body. And we need to have uh, a certain amount of oxidants will, will be coming into our body regularly and we need to have enough antioxidants to balance those out. So reactive oxygen species is an example of an oxidant. And these essentially, if there are too many of them, can run around our body and wreak havoc. So they can do quite serious damage to our cells, things like breaking down the lipid membranes around the outside of the cell, um, causing mitochondrial dysfunction and mitochondria being the energy um, transferent of the cells. So if you damage your mitochondria, the cell can either underfunction or just die from lack of energy. Um, and occasionally reactive oxygen species can affect the DNA of the cell as well, which means that it sends the wrong messages and, and again, underperforms or dies. Um, so what oxidative stress is, very simply, is just having too many oxidants and not enough antioxidants because antioxidants can bind to these oxidants and kind of break them down um, and keep our balance in check. But in individuals that have oxidative stress, they simply don't have enough antioxidants to really tackle those um, oxidants. <laughs> I feel like I've just said oxidants fifty times, but hopefully came across. And, and just to just to, to to keep it simple for for me, oxidants bad. Oxidants anti bad, antioxidants anti good. good. I think that might be a bit too simplistic because oxidants do have their place as well. But if there are too many of them and not enough antioxidants, then we have a problem. Okay, well. We'll leave the nuance till later because I'm just I'm just yeah, I'm just yeah, keeping yeah. up. In, but, in general, yes. Okay, good, good. And, and yeah. So how and, and and how does that relate to to psychosis? Yeah. Um, so essentially, there is more and more literature coming out suggesting that individuals with schizophrenia tend to have this oxidative stress. So their their balance of oxidants to antioxidants um, is is off in comparison to to people without a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Um, so. What we're doing is looking at whether or not providing antioxidant supplements can actually help with the negative symptoms and the cognition in schizophrenia. So there have been a number of studies looking at this now in about the last 10 years. The first one was done uh, by uh, Professor Michael Burke at the University of Melbourne in 2008. That was kind of the first study of this particular antioxidant treatment for schizophrenia, um, which had really positive results. Um, and uh, there's sort of mixed literature. There's some sort of suggesting that it helps. There's some suggesting that it's it's not particularly helpful. So I think the jury's still out. But um, my what I suspect is that for definitely a certain group of individuals with schizophrenia, it seems to be helpful with the negative symptoms. 
That's really awesome. Oh, that's really awesome news there, Caitlin. And like, what's like, what's next in this space? Because it sounds like it could benefit a huge amount of people. Yeah. So I think that um, a really important uh, component of this is being able to uh, conduct more research into the the mechanisms by which this antioxidant might be helping. So. Um, the theory is that, and I might note as well, this particular antioxidant is called N-acetylcysteine or NAC, um, and it's been it's been used for a very long time, but not for schizophrenia specifically. Um, so, uh, I think it's important to investigate whether or not um, there are certain individuals that respond to it, because I think sometimes when we do research studies, we group people by diagnosis, and I think that's kind of limited because you know, not everybody with one diagnosis might be the same and might be having the same kind of biological processes going on. Um, so I think we need to do more symptom-based research to see how, how it kind of correlates with different symptoms um, rather than necessarily group-by-group group comparison. Sorry, that's a very research-specific answer. <laughs> um, but basically we need to do more research. Um, Spoken and, like a true researcher. <laughs> um, and... Uh, also, I think it's important to note that in the studies that have shown positive results for this um, antioxidant, they're much longer interventions. So it's over like 24 weeks or up to a year where we're seeing results. If people are only taking it for like eight weeks or, you know, a couple months to a few months, it doesn't seem to be helping. So it looks like it's a longer, yeah, thing that is that is required. Uh, Epi, you need to turn your uh, microphone on. Um, I have a, Kate, a question, Caitlin. How are they monitoring this? Is this a blood test, pre and post? or that That's a great question, EpiPen. So um, there are a couple of different ways that we can look at this. One is definitely a blood test. So we can look at the levels of um, the antioxidant that I'm interested in is called glutathione, and we can literally look at that in, in the blood. Um, another way is actually through brain scans. So one thing that I did in my PhD was take an MRI scan, a particular type of MRI scan called magnetic resonance spectroscopy, um, and that allows us to quantify the level of that particular antioxidant in the brain as well. And that's quite helpful because it allows us to have an idea as to whether or not um, what's going on in the blood is reflective of what's going on in the mm. brain and vice versa. You bring up some some fantastic I mean, so many interesting things. We could spend the next two days talking to you, Caitlin. One particular area that I'm uh, that I'm always talking to the the psychiatry trainees about is the idea of of how we group people for diagnostic purposes, and um, how that um, really smooths well, not smooths out. It kind of obliterates the individualism of the person sitting in front of you, and that we always need to remember the person sitting in front of you is not a diagnosis they're a person and just because they might have a diagnosis attached them of say depression or uh, OCD their expression of that is going to be very very different to to the next person who walks in with that that label attached and um, as you as you as you very clearly put it before that that schizophrenia is a a collection is a syndrome it's a collection of symptoms and people can express that very very differently it's almost I I say to often say to psych registrars um, you know, a diagnosis, a psych diagnosis can often be like saying headache. Now, a headache can represent, you know, a stress headache. It could re- represent a migraine. It could, but it's the, just because somebody has that diagnosis attached does not speak to their individual experience of that particular illness and whatever phenotypy, whatever um, 
uh, um, whatever physical and genetic uh, makeup goes in, goes into that. And it's, it's something really important to, to keep in mind compared to, say, uh, physical illnesses like a heart attack, you know, a bit of muscle dies in the heart. But psychiatric and psychological illnesses are a very, very different expression of that. So more power to you for that. Now, but I've got to ask you a question. How do you bring drama, your training in drama, into your professional research life? Um, That's such an interesting question. And um, I would like to start by saying I haven't done it nearly as much as I would like to. Um, Because one of the things I'm really keen to do is use the intersection of the performing arts to um, what kind of what we were talking about before to do a better job presenting scientific research and, um, you know, uh, what these mental illnesses actually look like into into the forefront, into popular culture. Um, So, I'm at the very starting stages of <laughs> this at the moment, but I'm looking together. I'm looking to put together a performance piece that um, looks at mental health issues and um, and and the sort of research that we're doing. Uh, and, and yeah, very beginning stages at the moment because to to this time my lives have sort of been separate. I've kind of lived a bit of a double life and done theatre and improvisation over here and then done my research Mm. over here with just in the back of my mind, oh, I want to join the two because I think it is really important. I think we have a responsibility as researchers to use whatever skills we have to bring our research um, into the general community. Ah, fantastic. Which is exactly what you're doing here as well. So power to to. Uh, Dr. G. Scott, Epi Penn, and Dr. Mel for your for your efforts in doing exactly oh, that. Thank you, Caitlin. I was <laughs> going to say when you're doing your casting, do remember us because I think you're fantastic in any production. <laughs> yeah, I can see it all now. I can see it up in <laughs> light. Dr. Hey, G. Scott, up in light. Hey, uh, I <laughs> Caitlin, where do we find out more information about uh, just generally schizophrenia and particularly your research? Um, uh, for my research specifically, um, I, I put a lot of my stuff out on Twitter. So I'm on Twitter um, <laughs> uh, at uh, Kobe Yolland. It's C-O-B-Y-O-L-L-A-N-D. Well, we'll get those details and our social media expert, EpiPen, will put them up on our Instagram account. That's the Radio Therapy Instagram account. Um, I also, uh, our, our particular lab does a lot of um, does a lot of schizophrenia specific research under the direction of uh, Professor Susan Russell. She's been working in schizophrenia for a very oh, long time. Oh, I know her. Now. She's fantastic. Yes, I remember her. Yeah, from, she was um, my primary supervisor oh, yeah, throughout my PhD. From the Alfred, yes, <laughs> terrific. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so uh, our Cogmuro unit also has um, a Facebook page and a Twitter. Um, That's Swinburne Mental Health. Terrific stuff. Um, Well, stay with us, Caitlin. Now, if if this segment has brought up some issues for you, don't forget uh, there's the Beyond Blue website, which is just the most fantastic website. That's the Beyond Blue. And there's also uh, Lifeline 131114. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. You are indeed listening to 3 Triple R. I am Dr. Mal. We've got uh, Dr. G-Spot. We've got Nurse EpiPen. We've got uh, Dr. Caitlin Yolland. And on the Zoom, the Zoom. I'm sounding very old-fashioned, aren't I? On Zoom, we've got Professor John McNeil. Good morning, John. How are you? Uh, I'm good, thanks, Rob. Mel, you are about. Yeah, look, 
I think after 25 years, I might just go under my name <laughs> because it's, it's getting hard for me. <laughs> I will go for a, with Mal for a little bit longer. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us. I'm surprised you actually have a second in your day reading your, your CV is longer than a novel. My goodness. <laughs> I try to pat it out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll learn from the master. Over to you, EpiPen. This is, uh, this is your yeah. segment. So, John, fantastic to have you. And we did introduce you um, before the show, so you might have missed the introduction, but your CV is extensive and you are involved in so many activities of which I'd love to talk to you about all of them. But the main one we um, asked you to come on the program was in reference to the Asprey study. So maybe you'd like, maybe you can start it off and tell us all about that and what was the trigger for the research. And it's terribly controversial and it's terribly interesting. Uh, yes, well, it goes back a long way, um, Penny. When I, um, uh, back in the early 1990s, it became obvious that we needed to know a little bit more about aspirin, particularly about its use in otherwise healthy people. And um, whereas it's use in people who've had a heart attack or a stroke or uh, any other sort of heart disease um, has been well established and well proven, uh, it wasn't so well proven about uh, whether it should be used in people who'd never had any uh, previous illness. And yet um, and a very high percentage of the population, both here and in the US, were taking it for prim so-called primary prevention. And um, we were just uh, very fortunate in uh, uh, we'd had this in mind, but in the, in, in the uh, mid-2000s, uh, we had the opportunity to get the funding we needed to answer the question, and that was the sort of origin of a spree. Um, I mean, the other really important thing, though, is that uh, it's, it was a community-based study which involved uh, a lot of investigators all contributing in their own way, uh, uh, over 2,000 general practitioners and uh, over 16,700 uh, people in Australia and 2,500 in, in America. So it's a community-based study of uh, quite um, big proportions. And what did the study show, John? Well, it showed basically that, uh, that uh, the 40% um, or so of people who take aspirin without a need to be taking it uh, aren't achieving any value from it, that they, but any tiny benefits are outweighed by uh, equivalent risks. And uh, that's had a big impact uh, already, the amount of, of aspirin being uh, taken for so-called primary prevention by people who don't need to be taking it has uh, dropped quite precipitously in both the US uh, and Australia. And uh, when I use the word controversial, I think it's, if I was a GP listening to this, I'd be thinking, gosh, aspirin has been shown to be useful for years and then it's not shown and then it has been shown and then it's shown. And are we back to the beginning where it isn't showing any benefit? Well, it's, again, it's really important to point out that it's beneficial for people who've had a heart attack or a stroke or angina or uh, what we call a transient ischemic episode you know that's there's no question there uh, we're talking about a different thing though this is about healthy people who don't need to be taking it and uh, and the fact that um, they're not likely to achieve any benefit now um, one study has always got to be taken with a grain of salt as you know but uh, in uh, 2018 there were three very big studies two others similar to a spree which all came to the same conclusion 
And uh, I think the three of them put together is what has uh, has changed uh, our attitude. Yeah, very interesting. Um, I did have a read of the paper and there was an increase in cancer-related deaths. Yes, there was, and we're still trying to work that out. That was very unusual. It's the only study that's ever been um, shown to uh, increase the number of people dying from cancer. But, look, the numbers were very small. Uh, It could have been a statistical fluke, and uh, we haven't ruled that out by any means. Um, But on the other hand, um, uh, we were very careful. We we were planning to measure uh, cancer, and we planned to measure uh, the cause of, uh, of, Ill, of death. And um, at the end of the day, there were about 60 more people dying from cancer within the, in the people, amongst the people taking aspirin than amongst the people taking placebo. So it has been taken very seriously, um, uh, particularly in the US. And, uh, you know, we've still got a, a lot of answers to come for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lovely to have you on the show, John. Thank you for sharing these important results. And you've mentioned sort of Australia and US. I was wondering if you could speak to any cross-cultural differences that you found in your study. Mm -hmm. Uh, We didn't really look for any uh, cross-cultural differences, um, although some became very obvious in the way that uh, medicine's practised in in, uh, Australia and the US. Um, it, our study was though focused on older people, and in in the in uh, amongst older people in the US, uh, most of them are covered by the US Medicare system, which is uh, provides you know excellent care to the people over sixty five. Um, and so, our, our study really didn't uh, didn't identify any differences in the sort of medical care that was provided to people. Um, but there were a lot of little differences which probably aren't worth pursuing. Do you know, John, my, my contact with Asprey is you've got these really big buses that you drive out to the community and they're parked in the Monash car park. And whenever I try and get a car park, I have to squeeze in between the things and they're, they're enormous. Like it takes me 20 <laughs> minutes to get into my car park. Get out. Um, but that's by the by. The, the amount of resources um, provided for this study was ginormous it really was epic wasn't it um and this was when did this start uh well we started in about uh, 2010 11 Mm. uh, we started recruiting people but we were very fortunate you see when you do a very big study like this um uh, um, particularly in healthy people we have an opportunity to answer many more questions than simply whether aspirin works and we were very fortunate uh, in being uh, being given funding from the NHMRC and from um, uh, from CSIRO and from Monash University to be able to answer some of these questions. And um, one of them was, of course, is uh, can we predict who's going to become develop a chronic illness um, so that we can intervene in early when it's likely to be uh, you know, possibly reversed? And um, so we were able to collect blood samples. Uh, from from about twelve and a half thousand people, and those were that was what those buses were for. They were mobile laboratories. Um, the blood blood samples have to be processed within uh, four hours, and we couldn't have done it except by uh, sending our staff out and collecting the blood. And John, as the head of ethics at the Alfred Hospital, um, what was the consent form like when you're looking at and storing blood that you might? not be sure what your hypothesis is for using them or was that in, in built in the consent that 
you had some uh, theories of what you would test the blood on? Uh, no, we, we had it fairly open, Penny. So, um, and I should just say, although I chaired the ethics committee, that uh, the uh, ethics approvals weren't uh, didn't have anything to do with me. Of course, they were um, they were achieved through uh, the Monash University. Uh, okay, um, and it's really interesting because I was also doing some googling this morning, um, and there, there's a paper looking at um, in the BMJ looking at giving Indigenous people aspirin. Um, to, to lower all-cause mortality. It, it's an observational study. Um, do, you, do you know anything about that one? Uh, no, I, do, I don't, uh, Penny. There's been nervous. Uh, I mean, aspirin's one of the most widely studied drugs yes. of the time. Um, but I think that uh, no matter what the population of people is, that they'll probably want to take note of three these three big studies. Yeah, um, very important. And... Um, Another question that I had was about sepsis. Your group has published about um, the outcome of sepsis in your patient group. Yes, um, that's uh, interesting because, um, uh, and this ties into something that uh, Caitlin was talking about earlier, the antioxidants and so on, and, um, and the biochemical effects of, of aspirin and uh, its impact on blood platelets and and uh, so on, because there had been a few observational studies suggesting that um, aspirin could reduce the impact and uh, lethality of serious infection. And uh, so we were had the opportunity to study this, and uh, a number of uh, colleagues at the Alfred uh, uh, organised, uh, and elsewhere, organised the study, and it showed, I think, very conclusively that aspirin had no impact on mortality from sepsis. Mm, mm, very interesting. Do, do you know? Pardon me, John, but but I'm I'm um, I, I approach life as a skeptic. Every single you know, when somebody tells me it's black, I say it's white. When someone says it's white, so it's because that's just, I guess, how I was born. Now, do you reckon um, that the 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 um, the current um, thinking about aspirin will change? in 20 years' time, like somebody will discover something else and go, oh, hey, it's kind of like butter or eggs. Like, you know, they were bad, they were good, they were bad, they were good. Is, is that possible or is it is the case kind of closed now, the primary prevention of ischemic events with aspirin? No, it's, it's, it's just not going to work in the elderly. Uh, look, uh, that's a really good question, Rob. You never know. Uh, there, <laughs> may be, uh, there may be, you know, new data that comes out, but... Um, uh, I think Esprit uh, cost so much as a study. It was a very expensive study. And uh, whether anybody's going to realistically be able to reproduce it, uh, I just don't know. Yeah. And, and whether people are going to be wanting to sign up to test it again, yeah. given the results of what's available now. I'll take that as it's... It's locked. It's done. It's like we're now 100% sure. I'll tell you what we're going to do, John, if you don't mind. We're going to throw to some sponsorship announcements and come back because it's a great, it really is a great uh, a privilege to have you on the show. We've got dozens of questions we're going to ask you. So if you could just bear with us for about uh, 10, oh, not even, yes, probably about two more minutes. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We were talking with John about all things public health. And EpiPen, you've got a burning question. I've got a burning question. Just two questions, John. 
maybe the first one is was there any link with depression and being on aspirin and the other one was that the, the study was um, deemed by the trial group to needed to stop because the results were con looking very conclusive could you talk to those two questions please uh, yes I will uh, Penny but well, number one uh, yes, um, there'd been a, a, we collaborated uh, with uh, uh, Professor Michael Burke, who's uh, a professor of psychiatry at, uh, at Deakin, and um, he's a very, um, a very accomplished uh, 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 researcher in, in uh, depression and all things psychiatry, and he has helped us design into a spree a, a study, a test as to whether aspirin uh, would improve depression. Uh, or would prevent depression developing in older people. And it really was a big issue which we identified. We were really quite surprised at the number of people who became depressed uh, in old age. But aspirin didn't impact on that at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that was useful in a way because it settled that, just like it settled a number of other things with mm -hmm. aspirin. Mm -hmm. um, your other question? Um, yes, when the study group decided that... that, that it needed to close in 2017? Yes, well, as you know, we were funded by the um, United States um, National Institutes of Health. And uh, it, it, uh, the study was originally going to go on for five years. But at the four and a half year point, the, uh, the US, who'd been looking at the data as it accumulated and knew what the trends were, said uh, that there was no way that aspirin was going to be of any benefit in this age group. And so they called it to a halt. Um, but somewhat uh, after that, they also said, look, this is uh, really, it's really important that we uh, keep an eye on the cancer issue. Um, and, that, uh, and so they then uh, provided funding for another five years. So the study was continuing now and it will continue till 2024 at least uh, to, to um, resolve this question. Yeah, and they were the mostly gastrointestinal cancers in the people that were on the aspirin, weren't they? Wasn't it? Uh, no, not not really. They were um, the yeah, in in a spree. Uh, there was only a very modest increase in in uh, cancer diagnoses, but there was a, a an increase in cancer deaths. Oh, cancer deaths, and that affected almost every oh. type of cancer except uh, for blood-related cancers like lymphomas and leukaemia. Is there a theory, that, John, as to why that might be so? Um, no, not really. Not, uh, not really, Rob. Mm. I, I think we've still got some uh, way to go. And as I said, we're, we're not excluding the possibility that this is a chance finding, but the more we look into it, uh, the more we feel we have to take it seriously. Yeah. John, what do you think... Are there going to be the big areas for public health? I mean, certainly COVID is like number one, two, three, and fifty. But what are the? What do you reckon the next ten years will be the big areas for public health in Australia? Uh, look, I I think uh, the ageing population is going to be a big focus. I mean, you know, when I, I when I graduated uh, back uh, in the in nineteen seventy one, uh, I think you have to remember that back in those days. Uh, over forty percent of men had died by the time they were forty, and um, uh, but wow. nowadays uh, about eighty, uh, over eighty percent, over eighty-five percent of uh, men and women live into their seventies, yeah. um, and uh, that's a, an enormous change just in one professional lifetime. 
and uh, dealing with that and keeping the uh, keeping people uh, out of nursing homes for as long as they can, keeping people uh, healthy and and active, is is going to be a real challenge for medicine. Mm. And um, it's going to raise ethical issues. It's going to raise uh, raise clinical issues. It's uh, it's it's a very big issue. Mm. And obviously, there's the other things, you know, antibiotic resistance and uh, new infections and travel medicine. You know, all these sort of issues. And and um, and inequalities is always going to be a big issue. And the keeping costs uh, under control. You know, they're, they're, I think that's just one big amalgamation of issues. Mm. And John, you, we nickname you the King of the Registries. <laughs> so there's many, many national and and clinical registries around. Do you do you have a favourite that you've been involved with? <laughs> I mean, it might even be the prostate one. Talking about people dying, men dying younger, or something. Do you have a well, favourite registry? Uh, given given uh, your interest, Benny, I would say the spleen registry. <laughs> We'll answer, John. Well played. Well played. <laughs> it's like, how can you ask him that? But it's like saying, which one's your favourite child? You can't say that. Which is your favourite registry? Which one have you worked hardest on? Oh, good question. Uh, oh, well, look, I, th- I think... Um, I think we've done done a, a lot of good in um, in terms of registries. I mean, the purpose of registries is to provide back to clinicians some help in knowing whether they're uh, performing, uh, well, you know, whether the outcomes they're getting are really the best in the world, or they've got some improvement to go. And you can't uh, you can't draw those conclusions unless you measure the outcomes of people's treatment in a systematic way, so that you can so that the Doctors believe that, but but the, the information that they're being given, yeah. and um, you know we've got that going. I think very well with prostate uh, cancer and um, with um, with a number of other cancers, with cardiovascular disease, and a lot of these registries and like stroke are being run by uh, people around Australia, and uh, I, I think it's it, it's an area which is going to going to be more and more important. Yeah, I agree. Agree. John, I think uh, psychiatry is a very big area where it's needed as well. <laughs> yeah, well, well done, well played, John. Well played. Um, if you were if you were king for a day, um, and you could do uh, you know one thing or two things to have the most impact on the health of Australians, what would that be? Do you think? Um, I would uh, focus quite a bit on cancer therapy. Um, Rob, I, th- I think cancer has become, you know, it's, a, it's you know, there's the only ways to prevent cancer really, you know, it's not like heart disease where we know a lot about prevention, but preventing cancer is largely uh, an issue of detecting it early. Mm-hmm. Detect colon cancer early, most people recover, leave it till it's late um, and most people won't recover. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, we have a very big and effective public health program there with the bowel um, screening and yet only 40% of people bother to mm. to involve themselves. Mm. So improving uh, improving cancer screening would be one. Uh, I must say in the present company, though, I also have, uh, a, you know, a great belief that more needs to be done, more research needs to be done in the areas which, uh, uh, which you, you and Caitlin and and um, Dr. G's but representing mm. psychiatry, I think the burden of mm. of psychiatric illness is something which 
uh, we need to address. And, and particularly, I mean, my background is in part from epidemiology. I, my PhD was in pharmacology and I've spent most of my life in uh, understanding drugs and the way they work and so on. And uh, it strikes me that uh, the, uh, the armamentarium that you've got available to treat uh, to treat uh, even the simple issues in psychiatry are nowhere nearly as good as they are in most other areas of medicine. And uh, most of them were serendipitously discovered too, which is uh, the other startling bit of history. Um, yeah, they were, they were, there wasn't a theory which led to the to a drug development for, for most, not for every uh, uh, psychiatric drug. They just kind of were used for something and something else, like you know, anti-tuberculous drugs or uh, as an anaesthetic. And lo and behold, they worked for some psychiatric conditions. So yeah, we don't quite understand it. So yeah, um, true, 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 true. Um, Penn, you had a question. No, I'm I'm just in awe of, of <laughs> having such a, two amazing guests that I've learned so much today about. And as a person that survived cancer myself, I'm with you, John. I'm very it's a very important area. Mm. John, what's something that you believed very strongly, say, when you started off as a doctor, like you thought this is the gospel, this came down from the from the mountain on high, and now you just it, it, it's it's been shown not to be true. We'll take we'll take aspirin out of it because I think you've disproved that one very nicely. But is there something which you thought, wow, that's totally changed my belief system? Uh, I'm sorry you've taken aspirin out of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. When I was uh, when I was at Melbourne University, I uh, uh, I used to teach uh, clinical pharmacology to the students, and uh, I used to wax lyrical about the value <laughs> okay. of aspirin. <laughs> and that's probably uh, you know we've got better drugs for high blood pressure yeah. we've got better drugs for cholesterol lowering you know a lot of things for better antibiotics um, but but I, I think the bigger that aspirin's been the biggest yeah. change in my lifetime it would probably be if I had to say probably one of the biggest in mine as well as you say I mean almost every day at medical school you'd hear you know aspirin's great for as primary prevention of ischemic events you know if you're not prescribing aspirin you're doing something wrong it was aspirin and it's cheap and it's at a patent and you know very limited side effects although now we know that's not so true thanks to the aspirin trial so yeah, I, yeah, I was a bit remiss taking aspirin out of it. I agree, John. It's it's been an absolute delight uh, having you with us. Thank you so much for taking time. I know you've got an incredibly busy schedule, so thank you, thank you, thank you, and um, more power to you. And I'm sure we'll see you around. And can we can we get your commitment to come back onto the show sometime in the next year? Oh, certainly. Okay. Rob just asked me about registries. <laughs> okay, we'll ask you about registries. And we've got you on record saying you're coming back. Thank you so much. That's Professor. Uh, uh, very nice to catch up with you guys. Thank, thank you so you much. That, Professor John McNeil, and uh, thank you so much. And Dr. Caitlin Yoland, um, thank you so much to you too for telling us all about oxidative stress and its relationship to psychosis and teaching us um, all about those relationships. Thank you to Dr. G. Spot for coming on the show, as always, and uh, Nurse EpiPen. What would we do without our nurse manager? And thanks to you guys for listening to another jam-packed show of radiotherapy. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. <laughs>